I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2 this Lord's Day as we have made our way now to the, the end of this second chapter in Luke's Gospel. And if you've been with us, you know that so far we have covered uh, events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ as, as well as Jesus' cousin John the Baptist who we find in the Scripture is one who is a forerunner who, who goes to prepare the way for the Lord. And so when we left off last in Luke chapter 2, uh, we were there at the account of Jesus when he was about six weeks old and was being presented at the temple. And now uh, Luke in his gospel has moved ahead quite a bit. He jumps to uh, the age of 12 in Jesus's life. It's interesting that, that Luke is the only one that tells us about Jesus' life during this time. In fact, the other gospel writers don't give us any details about Jesus between the ages of 3 and 30. Uh, but Luke here does, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He, he gives us this account, and he gives it to us for great purpose. And I hope that we'll see that purpose as we walk through God's Word this morning. And So we're going to look at Luke chapter 2 verses 39 through 52, and if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as I read God's Word. Uh, we stand out of reverence because this is the Holy Word of God, and this is what God's Holy Word says to us, given to us uh, by a doctor named Luke, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit and wrote these words. And when they had performed everything, speaking of Jesus' parents, according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You would pray with me. Father, we do ask this morning that you would help us to walk by faith to trust in you today and every day of our life, to behold the greatness and the awesomeness of the gospel of Jesus, to respond to that gospel 
in repentance and in faith. I ask, Lord, specifically that you would help us to see how this passage at the end of the second chapter of Luke, how it helps us to do that very thing, how it helps us to trust in Jesus and walk with Jesus by fundamentally understanding who Jesus is. And so, Lord, would you bless our time now as we consider your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A number of years ago, a astrophysicist named Michael Hart, he wrote a book entitled The 100, and in that book he, he asked the question, who are the 100 most influential people in all of world history? In his book, he gave his perspective on who he felt the top 100 were. He even ranked where he felt they fell throughout world history. Who, who was the most important down to who was the 100th most important. And he would give their name, a brief description, and a, a brief biography of each person. And so, as you look through his book, you find a number of interesting things. For example, at number 11, he listed Louis Pasteur, who's known for his great discoveries in science, the process of vaccinations, and the process for pasteurizing milk, which has been a great help to world civilization. Uh, there were other inventors that he listed, uh, like the Wright brothers. I'm from North Carolina, and we have that, that license plate. Uh, a tribute to the Wright brothers, first in flight. They came in at number 28. Uh, a number of you I know have worked for Ford or worked for Ford. Uh, Henry Ford probably wouldn't be very happy. He fell 91st on the list, uh, but he did make the top 100. Of course, he would have been happier than Leonardo da Vinci, who was listed as 100. He was the last person to make Hart's list. Uh, there was the great reformer Martin Luther. He came in on Hart's list at 24th just ahead of George Washington, who came in at 25th. I found the list to be very interesting. Of course, as I was reading it, I was looking for one particular person. I wondered where this astrophysicist, Michael Hart, would place Jesus in his list of the 100 most uh, influential people throughout the history of the world. And I found that he did not list him first. Uh, first, he listed Muhammad. Uh, the prophet of Islam, just behind Muhammad, uh, he listed Isaac Newton, and then at third, he listed Jesus. Now, I don't think this morning that our Lord Jesus is up in heaven worried about where he falls on Michael Hart's list of the top 100 people. I don't think it is significant to Jesus that he was number three and not number one. What I do think is significant is what's going on in Michael Hart's life. What's going on in his heart that the Lord of all creation is not first on his list? I think it's significant for you and I this morning as to whether or not Jesus Christ is first on our list. You see, the question that, that heart is faced with, the question that every one of us is faced with, the question that everyone who has ever lived is faced with, is who is Jesus? And that's a question that Luke, this, this doctor who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pins this narrative, this gospel, for a man named Theophilus, a man who Luke says he is giving to him an, an orderly account that he might have great certainty concerning the things he had been taught. Taught about who? Taught about Jesus. And so Luke, in giving us this gospel, and giving us these details, and giving this account, 
about Jesus at the age of 12. He is doing this that we, that Theophilus, that others might be able to understand clearly who Jesus is, why Jesus came, what Jesus accomplished, and what Jesus indeed is doing on behalf of us today. And so I want us to think about these things with that, that question that I believe Luke is answering for Theophilus and answering for us. That, that question that faces Michael Hart and faces every one of us. That question. Who is Jesus? And so we'll begin with that first point in your outline where I reiterate, I think Luke is answering this question in his gospel account. Remember again, his audience, Theophilus, he, he is giving this man certainty concerning the things he had been taught. Things he had been taught about Jesus. Things he had heard about Jesus. Now Luke is giving this orderly, well-researched account. This account that involves eyewitness testimony. And so you think about the passage we read today about the boy Jesus in the temple. How, how would Luke know about these things? Well, he would have interviewed people. He would have talked to people. It's very likely, given the details we have, that one of the people he interviewed was Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so he goes to great length to write these things down. And then the Spirit inspires him. And we have before us this gospel account. This gospel account that tells us about the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That answers for us the question of who Jesus is. And that is such an important question that needs to be answered. Because in Luke's day, just as in our day, there was and is great confusion. That there are a lot of wrong answers to that question. And so you go around our culture today, our world today, and you ask people, who is Jesus? You will get all kinds of answers. I had the opportunity not long ago to ask a, a Mormon missionary who, along with another, was going door to door. I got to ask them this question, who is Jesus? Now, if you ask the Mormon who Jesus is, they'll tell you, well, Jesus is the Son of God. And that sounds like the right answer, doesn't it? But then you ask them more questions, and you find out the Jesus they're speaking of is not the Jesus of Scripture. No, that Jesus is the Son of God, not just the God, one of many gods. That Jesus, they believe, was a polygamist and fathered many children. And that Jesus was the older brother of another named Lucifer. And what you find is that the Mormon Jesus is not the Jesus of Scripture. You ask a Jehovah's Witness who Jesus is, and, and they'll say the Son of God, and that sounds right, and so you start asking them more questions, and you find that they do not believe that Jesus is eternal. At some point, he came into being. He was created. They do not believe the Trinity. They do not believe that Jesus is God the Son. They believe he's a son of God, but not God the Son. You find that they don't believe in the Jesus that the Scripture tells us of either. Now, you could literally today go and find a hundred different people and ask them, who is Jesus? And you could get a hundred different answers. And we can see, not just in our world, but we can see in the scripture how people so often got this question wrong. How people in Jesus' day, people that we read of in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, how they were quick to affirm Jesus was a man, but he was not divine. He was not God. In fact, just in Luke's day, we see so many heresies that still plague the church. We see the heresy, for example, in Luke's day of Gnosticism, which was making converts in the early church and taught that Jesus 
wasn't really God incarnate. God could never take on flesh and blood. Another heresy taught that Jesus may have seemed to be human, but he wasn't really human, that, that God couldn't take on actual humanity, actual flesh, that, that really he was just more of a, of a ghost, an aberration. Now, all of these false teachings that were in Luke's day, we see, see so many of them today, and they all go back to this question, who is Jesus? Well, friends, the Scripture answers this question. Now, what the Scripture helps us to see very clearly is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that Jesus has always been and always will be, that Jesus is fully God and that Jesus is fully man. That in the incarnation, Jesus took on flesh in the fullness of humanity. And it's these two things that so often get uh, misunderstood or confused in one way or another. There are those who will deny the divinity of Jesus or they'll deny the humanity of Jesus. And this is the root of so many false religions and false teachings. And so it's no accident then that that Luke really touches on both of these things in this passage, that I believe one of the reasons he gives us this, this picture of Jesus at the age of 12, Jesus here at the temple, is because in this account we see both the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. And so let's look at those things now by continuing on in your outline, point two there, and seeing how Luke teaches us about the humanity of Jesus. We pick up here in verse 39 where we're reminded that Joseph and Mary were, were faithful Jews. That they followed the law of God. We saw them last where? At the temple where they were presenting Jesus. They were dedicating him to the service of the Lord. And now we see them back when he's 12 years old where? At the temple. And Luke is quick to tell us they are doing these things according to the law. Jesus is growing, he says. He's becoming strong and filled with wisdom. He makes this same point in verse 40 and verse 52 where he says, Jesus increased in wisdom and increased in stature. Luke here giving us an insight to the humanity of Jesus, to the biblical truth that Jesus was truly and fully human. That he grew and he developed from infancy into childhood. From childhood into adolescence, from adolescence into manhood, we see Jesus here growing, developing, learning, understanding. Again, we're reminded in the incarnation, God the Son became a man. The divine person of the Son assumed a human nature, and that human nature here is learning and growing and developing. And Jesus had a human mind, a human body. Like you and I, he learned things. But unlike you and I, he did this while being sinless. He was not depraved in any of this. He, he wasn't wrestling with a sin nature in any of this. He was the sinless, perfect Son of God. But in that, he was man, and he was learning, and he was growing, and he was developing. And we see a picture of that here in this account. So verse 41, Luke helps us to see this as he gives us this account of Jesus and his parents going to Jerusalem. We learn here that this was during uh, the Passover celebration. And it's significant because at the age of 12, Luke tells us that Jesus goes with his parents to this Passover celebration in Jerusalem because this was uh, according to the custom. 
You see, the custom was this. When a, when a young Jewish man was 13 years old, he was considered to be a, a son of the commandment. In fact, in the Hebrew, the term for that is bar mitzvah. It's where we have the custom today among Jewish families. When their son turns 13 years old, they believe that he's becoming a man, and that is rooted in the Scripture. But it wasn't just that he was maturing into manhood. This is when he had full rights and privileges in the synagogue. This is when he would then participate in the religious activity at the temple. And so to prepare for this step into manhood, this, this step into religious responsibility, uh, fathers of 12-year-old boys were encouraged to, to bring them to one of three annual feasts that would take place in Jerusalem. To bring them there so that they could observe and they could learn and they could participate. They could be prepared to now step into this responsibility that was on every Jewish man. And so it is fitting then that at the age of 12, that Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Jerusalem. Now this would have been one of the busiest times in Jerusalem. During this time, pilgrims would have come from far and wide to come together for the Passover observance. It's noted that as many as 200,000 Jewish people would have packed the streets, and with them there would have been around 100,000 sacrificial lambs. And so there would have been great activity Great commotion going on. And among them would have been this family, Joseph and Mary, Jesus. And so according to this custom, according to the law, Joseph now is teaching his sons. You can think about what that looked like. And he would have had Passover celebration with his family. And as they had that Passover celebration, as they had that sacrificial lamb, Joseph would have been there with his family and he would have been reminding them about the God of all salvation, the God who delivered his people in the great exodus out of their slavery in Egypt and taken them on their journey to the promised land. He would have taught them that the picture of salvation and every component represented in that Passover feast. And there would have been Jesus at 12 years old, listening and observing these things. Now, after the feast was over and the celebration was over, these families then would, would disperse. They would go back to their hometowns for Joseph and Mary. For Jesus, this means they would have taken the long journey back to Nazareth. And as was custom in those days in taking these journeys, they wouldn't have traveled alone. Uh, this was a long trip. This could be a dangerous trip. And so they would take... Uh, what we might think of today as a modern-day caravan. They would go with many other families, many other pilgrims, and as they traveled, it was customary that the, the women and the small children would go first, and the men and the older children, who were 13 and up and considered men, they would be in the back. They would make sure no one fell behind. And in between these two groups often would be those boys who were around 11, 12 years old who were making that transition into manhood. And so you start to picture this, and then it's, it's not so surprising what Luke tells us next in verse 43, that when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem 
searching for him. Well, when you start to picture that, that caravan, that activity, it's very likely that Mary in the front would have assumed that Jesus was either behind her or all the way back there with Joseph. Joseph in the back would have assumed that Jesus was somewhere in the middle or maybe traveling up there with Mary. It wasn't until they got to the end of a day's journey where they're now settling down and coming together that they realize, where's Jesus? And realize that, that they had lost their son. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever had anything close to this, but I remember a number of years ago when our kids were very young, uh, we lived here in Bloomfield. In fact, it wasn't long after we got to Bloomfield, and, and we'd had one of those Saturdays. A lot of you have had these when you have young kids. It seemed like we had to be in 10 different places, and there was all types of activity, and we were just running from place to place to place, and we, we finally pulled into the driveway. It, it was late. It was dark. We were exhausted. And then you got to get all the kids out of the van, and all the teeth have to be brushed, and everybody has to be put to bed. And, and I remember laying there beside my wife, and Sandy and I were exhausted. And then I remember her looking at me and saying, Did you tuck Anaclarian? I looked at her and said, I thought you tucked Anaclarian. And so we both assumed, well, Anna Claire tucked herself in until we went to her bedroom, and there was no Anna Claire. Went down to the couch, just checked, there was no Anna Claire. And then suddenly, we ran to the van in the driveway and found our young daughter curled up in the back seat, fast asleep. <laughs> now, it was fall, it wasn't hot, she wasn't there for more than, you know, seven, eight hours at most. But, but I can tell you in that moment, we, we, we felt like the worst parents in the world. We, we have forgotten our daughter, and she was asleep in the van in the driveway. Joseph and Mary lost Jesus, the, the, the Son of God, that the one that they were told would come to seek and save the lost, he was lost. <laughs> and so be comforted this morning, moms and dads. And maybe this week you were... Uh, feeling bad because you, you forgot to pack the lunch or you forgot to pick up that school supply or get ready for that art project or, or maybe you left them at a friend's house a little too long or maybe there was a miscommunication on who was picking up who from school and you felt rather miserable, but you didn't lose the Messiah. <laughs> and you certainly probably haven't lost your child for three days. But isn't this a picture of this life? That there's so much humanity in this story. The humanity of Joseph and Mary, and even, I believe, to an extent, the humanity of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. What is he doing? He's not lost. He knows exactly where he is, but, but he's not where his parents believe he needs to be. He remains back, and he's there at the temple. And so Luke tells us that it, it takes three days. They had gone a day's journey away, so it would have been a day to get back. But then it takes them a whole other day to find him. And again, this might puzzle us, but consider there are hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem. That there's all kinds of camps probably leading up to the city, and they're checking with everybody to see have you seen our son? Have you seen our son? Have you seen our son? And then they come to the temple. And they don't go to the lost and found office. <laughs> they don't go and, and find a, a group of concerned parents with misplaced children and sort through and try to find where their son is. No, they go and there they see 
the religious teachers gathered there at the temple grounds, and there's Jesus. Now, again, we, we tend to have this, this image in our head of, of all these religious teachers and, and how out of place it would have been for a 12-year-old boy to be there, but that's, that's not really accurate because in that time, especially with 12-year-old boys during this Passover celebration, the teachers, they would come out into the temple grounds and they would gather around them people and they would teach. Remember, these 12-year-old boys were being prepared for Jewish manhood. And so it would have been a, a common picture during this time, not just for one, but for many 12-year-old boys to be surrounding these teachers. And, and how the Jewish leaders often taught is they would dialogue and they would ask a lot of questions. They would present these questions to these boys. And they would have them kind of, in a way, problem solved. They would talk about the law. Well, how does the law apply to this? And, and how does the law teach us? And then what's the lesson from God here? But notice the picture we have here. It's of these teachers gathered around, but, but Jesus is unique in his response. Chances are he is giving here responses that that they weren't just unique for a 12-year-old boy. They were probably unique for anybody. He, he was speaking well beyond his years, and I believe well beyond the understanding of these teachers of the law. Because the picture we have throughout the Gospels is that often the teachers of the law misunderstood the law. That they got so focused on trying to be self-righteous that they missed what God was teaching them through the law and what the law was pointing them towards. Particularly, they, they missed what the law was teaching them about the Messiah. And so Luke doesn't give us every question and every answer and every detail, but I do think there's reason to believe here that Jesus the Messiah was teaching them about the Messiah. Whatever it was, the scripture tells us that when they hear him speaking, and they hear these things he's talking about, that it amazes them. In fact, they're a bit beside themselves. <laughs> and so what we see here, I believe now, is Luke is not only teaching us about the humanity of Jesus, he is also teaching us about the divinity of Jesus. So verse 46 tells us that after three days, they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And notice it isn't just the teachers now asking the questions. It's Jesus asking the questions. And Joseph and Mary, that they walk onto this scene and they see this. And immediately Luke says, they're astonished. Like these teachers of the law, they are amazed at what they are hearing from their 12-year-old son Jesus. But at least in Mary's case here, it seems that that amazement turns quickly to a bit of frustration frustration because as they're listening and as they're amazed Luke tells us in verse 48 when his parents saw him they were astonished and his mother said to him son why have you treated us so <laughs> behold your father and I have been searching for you in great distress it seems here that Mary is offering a bit of rebuke for the sinless son of God how could you do this you can imagine What's going through Mary's mind? Now understand what we see clearly in the Gospels. Mary and Joseph both had been given special revelation about God. They knew exactly who Jesus was. That they knew that this was the Messiah. They knew that this was the long-awaited one who would 
take on the sins of the world. They, they knew who Jesus was, but at the same time, now it's been 12 years since that angelic revelation. And everything in the scripture that we have before us presents us with an account that during those 12 years, it was the full humanity of Jesus that was on display. In fact, the Gospels tell us very clearly that, that his first miracle, his first sign, didn't take place until he was about 30 years old when he turned the water into wine. And so unlike some traditional accounts that have been handed down to us that are, that are not from God's Word, not from the Scripture, well, we don't have a picture of Jesus as a child walking around performing miracles out of spite is something. Now we have a picture of the full humanity of Jesus on display. Joseph and Mary were there and had a front seat to this. They cleaned Jesus up. That they cuddled this boy. That they picked him up when he fell down. That they wiped his scrapes and his bruises. Joseph at those Passover meals, he, he taught his son. That they saw their son growing and developing. So I think the, the first thought they have when they see Jesus, even though they're astonished at what he's saying, is they're looking at their 12-year-old boy and going, well, why'd you do this to us? And if they are considering the divinity of Jesus and the truth that had been handed down to them, perhaps Mary in her mind is thinking, listen, if you're the Son of God and you can answer all these questions, surely you know you knew that your father and I had left. <laughs> and you worried us sick. Why would you do this to us? But notice Jesus' response. Verse 49. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now that the tense and the verbiage and the language here gives us a a deeper understanding of how Jesus is communicating this and the way he's communicating this is, is not a, a sarcastic response or, or some type of sharp response. It, it is Jesus at the age of 12 looking at his parents who he understands fully have been given revelation about who he is. And here in this moment, he understands fully who he is. And he's looking at them almost with a sense of astonishment himself that how would you not know this is where I was? I mean, wouldn't you know that this is where I'd be? That this is my father's house. I'll remind you that this point in the scripture, Jesus as the sinless son of God, Jesus referring to the holy God of all creation as his father, this is one of the reasons that about 18 years, 20 years later, the religious leaders of the day would want to change. What we refer often, we're taught by Jesus to refer often to Jesus, to God as our Father. That, that's not language the Jewish people were using in this time. In fact, this was borderline blasphemy for them. And yet Jesus here is astounding them, astounding his parents. They don't even fully understand it. Luke says they, they did not understand what he was saying at the moment. But Jesus is here is, is presenting to them this, this very clear biblical truth we have before us today. That, that he's the sinless son of God, fully 
human and fully God, truly human and truly God. And they don't get it in this moment. And God doesn't tell us a whole lot about Joseph moving forward from here. We we believe that he, he died at some point between this and when the earthly ministry of Jesus begins. But, but we do have more insight to Mary. And Mary, while at this point did not understand, she would come to an understanding. Because Mary would be there at the cross. And she would be an eyewitness to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. She would witness the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. She would have a front row seat to the life, the ministry, and the crucifixion resurrection of Jesus. She would come to understand fully and completely who Jesus was. The question for us today is have we come to that understanding? Because it is very easy, friends, for us to misunderstand who Jesus is. For us to fall short in in acknowledging who Jesus is. And sure, he, he was significant. He was important. Maybe he's number three on our list. But he's not number three in God's word. He's the firstborn. He's preeminent. He's the eternal son of God. He was there in creation. He's there throughout the Old Testament. We see him take on flesh at the incarnation. He's there at the cross dying for your sins and mine. Where is he not? He's not in the tomb. Because he was resurrected and raised from the dead. And then the resurrected Christ, what's he doing? He's there teaching and explaining to his disciples exactly what all these things mean. How all things throughout the scripture point directly to him. He is the one who then sends forth the Holy Spirit to fill and to empower that we might be His witnesses. He is the one, God says, who is at His right hand now, interceding for us. He is the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings. He will not settle for second place, or third place, or hundredth place on your list or mine. He demands to be acknowledged first. In fact, He demands in His Word for us to acknowledge Him as Lord. And He says this, that a day will come whether you acknowledge that or I acknowledge that in our lifetime, a day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in all of creation that Jesus Christ is first. The question is, is He first in your life today and in mine? And if not, the invitation, friends, for you today is today to bow your knee. And today, confess Him as Lord. And today, to accept the wonderful gift and offer of grace and mercy. Today, to be cleansed and washed and forgiven. Today, to no longer be under the burden and the weight of sin. Today, to cry out to Jesus as Lord. And to follow Him all of your days. And so we invite you to do that as we come now to this time of response. If you would stand together as I pray for us and as we consider this all-important question, who is Jesus to you and to me?